Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number three of Placing Faces, the show where we get to sit down with some of the most influential casting directors in all of Hollywood and across the entertainment spectrum. I'm your host, Charlie Chappell, and today we sit down with casting director, teacher extraordinaire, and wonderful human being, Donna Morong. Donna was part of the team at Disney that cast the first films of a lot of the faces that you're going to recognize, including the Oscar-winning and nominated cast of Gone Baby Gone, Anne Hathaway from The Princess Diaries, or how about Heath Ledger, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Julia Stiles in 10 Things I Hate About You, James Franco in Annapolis, Rachel McAdams in The Hot Chick, and one of my favorites, comma, weird category, the movie Rubber. It's a good one if you can make it past the turkey and come to terms with the fact that it's about a tire who rolls across the desert killing things with its mind. We got a chance to chat with Donna early one afternoon in her Hollywood theater space at the Aquila Morong studio. Donna has this caring, heartfelt approach to what she does. Her early life on Long Island, a family who loved art, and I take it a lot of trips to MoMA certainly contributed to her taste. And then all these years later, she's achieved her childhood dream of creating a place where artists can all work together. If I had to use one word to describe Donna, it would be hardworking, kind, and humble, because one word just really wouldn't do her justice. Her kindness is palpable, and you can feel the joy that she takes in what she does. Her psychology studies seem to have made her into a really empathetic teacher, one that's going to provide all of us with a lot of invaluable lessons over the next hour. There's no need for me to keep going on and on about her. You're about to meet her. So without any further ado, I hope that you learn as much as I did. Let's start at the beginning where all great stories start. Where do you come from? How did you get where you're at now? Oh, (laughs) it's a a long story, right? right? It's a long story. Um, I was born on Long Island, uh, Roslyn Heights, um, upper middle class Jewish family. My dad was a dentist and loved the arts and introduced me to the arts when I was very young. Um, We went to the theater, went to Broadway shows, um, listened to music, went to museums a lot. I really loved painting. I've always loved painting, and he introduced me to the Museum of Modern Art. So I I developed a love for the arts at a really young age, and um, I was really fortunate in that I could study acting. I could do really... He came from a pretty deprived background. Both my parents did. You know, they were Depression-era children. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they, you know, they had this sort of, I think, very utopian vision of life when they were younger, very socialist vision that has certainly affected me later in life. So I was brought up with these dual concepts of artistry, the, the arts being almost a religion, and also socialism. Hmm. Um, and you know, they ended up, my father was a dentist, my mother was a social worker. So they had, you know, we had a very middle-class life and I had a really middle-class upbringing. Theirs was very deprived as, as young people, but, um, you know, their values really, um, were very informative and really influenced who I am today. Um, and I, you know, I painted when I was young, I wrote, I danced, I acted. And, you know, as I said, I love the arts and um, got more serious about acting when I was in college. And um, although I did some in high school, I went to Circle in the Square on Saturdays. I used to go into Manhattan by myself and go down to Bleecker Street. And like in that era, though, Bleecker Street and Yeah, it was really everything. cool. There were all these comedy clubs and jazz clubs. 
you know, and you'd smell like the vomit from the night before. <laughs> you know, I had come from this very clean, you know, you know, sure. suburb, and you know, to travel on the subway by myself was a pretty cool thing. I was quite young; I was like 14, 15 when I did that, um, and you know, studied at Circle in the Square, studied acting there, took some dance at Martha Graham. So I was really fortunate in that regard because I got the best at an early age. And I think what it did is, and this is really important in terms of being casting director, is I developed a sense of taste at a really young age. Absolutely. Because I was seeing the best, you know? I was really, you know, in a great position to see, like, the best theater, the best, you know, the best movies, um, really see the top in, in terms of people's talent and um, creativity and the kinds of things that they were producing. So that all had a really profound effect on me. Well, what are some of those early, are, are there any things that stand out to you in those early formative years <laughs> of your taste of plays that you saw or films that you saw that made you? Sure. I mean, there were an eclectic group. Um, I saw Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly. So it's amazing. Yes, it was amazing. I would love to see. I guess it's no longer Bette Midler. It's now Bernadette Peters in Hello Dolly. I'd love to see. Would love to see them do it as well. But seeing Carol Channing in Hello Dolly was pretty amazing. She was incredible, and I was. I think I was in fifth or sixth grade when I saw her do that. So um, that had a profound effect. I saw Gloria Foster do a play, and I wish it was at the Public Theater, I believe. I can't remember the name of the play, mm -hmm. but it was all about the African-American experience, about slavery, and I had never seen anything like that. And that's another thing that really had a profound influence is that I was an insomniac. So my parents watched a lot of news, mm -hmm. and there were all the race riots going on in Alabama, um, in Selma. And I would see, you know, all this police brutality and people suffering at a very young age. So when I saw that play, Gloria Foster in that play, it was just, it all came together that mm -hmm. I, I kind of understood or, or had a sense of, you know, just how difficult it, it must have been. I had a lot of empathy anyway, probably didn't have any sense of it, but I certainly had empathy um, for that, the experience of black people in the South. Um, in the North, too, but, you know, the whole slavery experience. And it was, yeah, she was an amazing performer, um, Gloria Foster. You know, as I got older, I got to see a lot of great things. Um, Barry Child, I saw, the, I think, the first perform, you know, the first production of that, Mother Courage. I was very interested in a lot of alternative theater. So Richard Schechner had Performing Garage, and I saw Mother Courage in there, and it was done in a, an actual garage and then they would open it up, and the, you know, the carriage would leave. Joan McIntosh starred in that. She was huh. a wonderful mother courage. So there are just, yeah, there are many different productions that sort of stand out in my head. Um, and went to the movies, you know, the CinemaScope was a big, you know, big yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, well, back onto the story of your life, you, you grew up in art. And it makes sense that you would go on to study forms of art. What were your studies, and, and where did they take you? Well, I, I originally started out studying dance when I was younger okay. and trained a lot. You know, I was a serious dance student in high school. And then in college, I actually I did some acting. I was part of a mime troupe, 
but um, I ended up majoring in psychology at the University of Michigan. Okay. So I was always interested in behavior, mm-hmm. and so that was you know that was another side of it, and my sort of my focus was on nonverbal behavior. And I did a thesis on nonverbal behavior in a group therapy setting. So I was very interested in what people say without talking. Sure. So what's underneath the words. And you know, there are two way, you know, there are two directions that you can approach that, either through the art or through the science. So I was interested on, you know, on both sides of that. Um, and then after college I went to New York, and that's when I studied with Bill Esperet. At that okay. point, I, I made a decision. There was sort of, you know, it's kind of at a crossroads. And one of the things that I really objected to about psychology was the way that patients were objectified. Um, I found that really disturbing. How do you mean? Um, well, I was doing this thesis on um, patients in a group therapy setting, and I was sitting behind a two-way mirror, and just the way the psychologist was handling the patients and talking about them, it felt, I, I felt that there was this real separation and kind of a judgment and um, that a lot of what we consider normal is not, is, you know, is very restricting. Mm-hmm. And since I knew so many artists and have a lot of creativity in myself as well, I feel like not everybody can, you know, sort of fit in this little box, and I felt like that's what he was trying to do. And so, and sure. I also just really, you know, I guess I just really felt the need to do something more creative. I mean, ultimately, what happened was that I realized that acting wasn't for me, that casting was a better use of my particular talents. Um, but I, yeah, I, the psychology aspect of it, I'm, I'm still fascinated by psychology, but I think that um, we as human beings have to sort of, we have to have empathy and understand the subjective. And I, I believe that um, there's a lot of suffering in the world because we don't empathize. Sure. And, um, and that, you know, now with psychology, I mean, we, that's a whole other conversation, but um, a lot of it is now about treating people through you know, chemicals through drugs. And sometimes I think that's effective, but I think that sometimes trying to normalize a person that way is very destructive. I agree. I absolutely agree. So with that study into psychology, I know it can certainly inform your teaching, but I'm really curious about how it affects and, and has colored your ability to cast. You know, casting, I think initially is very instinctive and it's really about for me it's about getting underneath sort of people's appearance to sort of what I think is the kernel of their I don't want to sound esoteric about it of their essence Mm -hmm. Um, so a person can have an emotional quality and even though they may appear one way deep down there's something different. And I think when you're casting, you have to be able to identify that and also to sort of connect with that. And um, I think that that's what you do in psychology also is is kind Mm -hmm. of understand what people's essence are. You have to be able to, I guess, be intuitive about that and um, come to wherever they are um, as people, whether they're, you know, more intellectual or more emotional. Sure. Um, more physically based, more spiritually based. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so whether it's psychology or art, you're still, you're still having to connect to people on that level. Um, and so, I, you know, I, so I, I, I think that that's how it informed my casting, if, if that makes any sense. So finding that connection and finding that empathy yeah, with yeah, right. the you individual know, rather than just seeing them for what they appear to be. Correct. Yes, right. And and when you're reading a script, too, sort of getting the sense of what that character is, being to mm. you know being to ident being able to identify, and also to empathize with that character, and sure. then to say, oh well, that person, even though maybe they're not, they don't fit that physical description that's in the script, that that person has the essence of that character, that or could sense. portray the essence. You know, great actors can do, you know, have a wide range of characters in them, and I think we all do. I think we all have a lot of people inside of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I know you, you said you worked in uh, a lot of theater early in your career. Um, and I want to go into some of these productions because you were around for some early productions of some very, very iconic plays, right? Yes. Um, I was really, again, right place at the right time. I worked for these two amazing women, Meg Simon and Fran Cuman, really gave me my first big job in casting. And at that time, they were casting on Broadway and off-Broadway. Um, and we were working on Neil Simon plays, Brighton Beach Memoirs, Biloxi mm -hmm. Blues. Um, we did the female version of The Odd Couple. We did the first production of Hurley Burley. Which we is the, the iconic acting production. class scene. If you go into any acting class right now, there's probably somebody doing a scene from Harley Burley. Probably. You were there, you were there for the original, which yeah. the cast was crazy. You, you had William Hurt, Christopher Walken, Harvey Keitel, Jerry Stiller, Judith Ivey, Sigourney Weaver, and Cynthia Nixon. Yeah, and Cynthia Nixon at that time was doing two plays. She was. Yeah, she was also in The Real Thing, which we were also <laughs> casting, and so she would run you know, between theaters to do both plays. So like the timing of her scenes in one play would she would leave right go a couple blocks to the other play jump into that character do that and then come back to finish up. Yes. That's crazy. It is crazy. Well, she's an incredible actress yeah, and she was, you know, as a child actor, she was one of those prodigies, sure. you know, that you see occasionally. It's pretty sure. rare. Well, surely you had something to do with that. It, luck is surely part of it, but what did what were you doing that helped you become part of these things? It's a good question. You know, I've been thinking about it. Um, part of being in your twenties um, is that you do you just do things. You know, you don't think so much about <laughs> whether I'm going to be good or bad at it. So you take a lot of risks, and you don't really know what you're doing, but you kind of just. So I was. I, really, I was just incredibly lucky because I literally went door to door knocking on doors for my first job. I walked up and down 57th Street and I knocked on this one door. I said I was looking for some kind of job in show business. I mean, you can't do this anymore. First of all, they would, nobody would let you in the <laughs> no, door. No, they would not. <laughs> right. And this nice man, kind of preppy looking man said, oh, I have a friend named Barnett Kelman. He might, he might need an assistant. So I contacted Barnett Kelman and... I don't know if you guys know him. He's, I'm not familiar. Yeah, no. he's a wonderful director, and um, he did a show called Breakfast with Less and Best. He also did a film called Key Exchange. He's writing a book right now. I was in touch with him not that long ago. Mm -hmm. But um, Barnett needed an assistant, and so I, you know, I 
I got hired. I, I think I got paid zero, <laughs> right? Uh, but, um, but but they I, let you in, and, right? Yeah, yeah. So, right. So those kinds of things, and you know, one thing led to another, and I think that you know ultimately led to my job with Megan Fran. Um, I worked as an agent for a short time too. So there was just I just did a lot of things and knew that I was interested in acting in the theater, but didn't quite know where I fit in. Mm -hmm. And I just try, you know, I was an assistant to a director. I worked as an agent. I worked as, first as an agent's assistant. Then I worked as an agent, worked as a casting associate, um, and then ultimately a casting director. So I just had many hats. I also had a million survival jobs. The thing is, I failed at a lot of stuff, too. And I, I try to remind my students about that because sometimes they despair. Oh, I have four jobs. You know, it's really hard. I have these four. And I, I completely understand that it's really tough. I was lucky in that being in the right place at the right time. I think being in Los Angeles now is a great time to be in L.A. Mm -hmm. Being in New York right now is a great time to be in New York. I think being in a city where there is that kind of it's a creative center is really important. Not that you can't do creative work in other places, but if you're a performing artist particularly, I think it's it's hard to really establish yourself. You can, but it's hard to have kind of continuity of career unless you go to New York or LA at some point. I think you can develop yourself, and I actually sometimes encourage actors to go back to their hometown like if you were raised mm. in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, you might get more jobs there first. Sure. So you can build up your resume to come to LA. So uh, you know, I think you have to weigh both. But New York, it was a great time to be in New York in the early '80s when I was, you know, first starting my theater career. I started acting before that, um, but yeah, I just took a lot of risks. Well, it sounds like to me, and wh and why I ask about luck because I don't, I, I'm not sure how much I believe in luck. I think, particularly with this industry, um, and it's mostly because this is the industry that I know, I'm sure a lot of other industries are the same way. There's a drive that certain people have, and, a, and a, I mean, you went knocking door to door to find a place. You did whatever you could and, and worked in a bunch of different aspects to figure out what fit for you, right? rather than just, just doing one thing and sticking with that and that can be argued for. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about uh, the old adage, uh, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. He had never heard the other part to that statement, which most people actually haven't. The whole statement is jack of all trades, master of none, but better than a master of one. <laughs> and and I, I'm a jack of all trades, so I really love that whole statement because... It allows you to pick up all of these different things. It allows you to learn all of the different aspects of what it is that you're trying to do and really find the place where you don't just kind of fit, but where it's snug, where everything fits perfectly. Um, and, and I think that it sounds like your journey wasn't necessarily just luck, that there was a lot of, it may not have been planning and it was 20s uh, free freedom to go out and do things, but it sounds like you went and did it and made it happen by whatever means necessary and kind of found it as you went rather than knowing very early on, which I don't think a lot of people do know early on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do think you're making an important point 
that you have to go out and do stuff. You have to be, you have to try and you have to risk and you have to fail at times in order to grow and order to find where your path is Mm -hmm. for sure. Absolutely. Um, So now I want to get into some of your movies because you have done some incredible movies uh, and I don't honestly really know where to start. Um, Actually, I do. Let's start at the beginning. I love hearing about first, everybody, uh, your first film that you're credited as casting director is 1988's Heart of Heart of Midnight. Midnight. Yes. <laughs> right. A yes. Thriller horror about a woman played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who was on the upswing in her career. Right. Um, who inherits a nightclub from her uncle and things get real weird. Right. Um, how was it that you made this first transition from assistant and associate to casting your first film? That's a great question. Because um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are out there who are assistants and associates. Yeah. And um, it really helps if you have a mentor. And I was very lucky early in my career. I worked as an associate for Joanna Ray. Yes. And she was friends with Matthew Chapman, who wrote and directed Heart of Midnight. And she recommended me for the job. Mm-hmm. So, and she believed in me. And, you know, I I was scared to death. I had never cast anything on my own before. Um, We worked out of the Dino De Laurentiis offices um, in Manhattan. And it was, it was fun. Matthew was a delightful, he's a delightful guy. I mean, I haven't seen him in many, many years, but I loved working for him. And, um, you know, we just did it. We just saw a lot of people. Steve Buscemi ended up being in the movie. Yeah, he did. Um, and yeah, it was a great experience, but it was having that early help, honestly. So the, that person the who believed in me, the boost somebody, from Joanna Ray, yeah. yeah. Well, Absolutely. and you had worked, uh, I've got it noted here, so, so you had worked with her on The Blob in, yes. in 1988, which is... Yes, I was her New York casting that's assistant pretty awesome. on that, yes. Um, and then with Douglas, and I'm not sure about pronouncing his name, Abel? Doug Abel, Doug yeah. Doug Abel. Uh, on Five Corners before you had done this movie. Right. What sort of things did you pick up from these casting directors at that time when you were still kind of being molded into a casting director that that allowed you to, even though you're maybe terrified, to do Heart of Midnight? What what did they teach you that allowed you to shoulder that responsibility? A real, you know, integrity about what they were doing, seeing many people, considering many people, um, thinking kind of outside the box, uh, being diligent and patient um, in, in reading people, you know, just being open, being organized. I mean, there's, you know, they call it a casting process, and there is a casting process, and I think very often now producers want to circumvent that, but I think the best casting comes out of a process. Um, It's also, you know, again, coming back to taste. Taste has a lot to do with it, sort of developing my taste through seeing, you know, kinds of actors that they responded to, what works and what doesn't work. So I would say that that all was um, important. Okay. So after that one, your career continued to grow. You did a couple more uh, with... Joanna Ray and Douglas Abel after that. But then it's pretty much you jumped out and you were cranking away on your own, more or less. I know you worked with other people, but I want to talk about some early appearances of actors 
that you contributed to that we it, it's it's crazy to me how many <laughs> how many people you really helped introduce to the wide populace I would like to say something sure. about that um, because as much as I'd love to take the, all the credit for it, um, it's not really accurate for any one person to. Um, in all of the situations um, that I've worked in, mm -hmm. there's a team of people. So it's not just one person who identifies who's, you know, oh, this person is right. I mean, you can be an advocate for sure. And that's the other thing is that um, Doug and Joanna are great advocates for the actors that they believe in mm -hmm. for roles. And that's really important. Um, and certainly I was advocates for actors in certain roles, but um, it is a team effort and it's the actors themselves, of course. It's, you know, it's, it's talent and hard work meets opportunity for an actor and for a casting director too. So I, I think it's a combination of things. I feel very, again, <laughs> I know this is sort of a theme, but I do feel really fortunate that I was able to help actors very early in their careers, certain actors like Rachel McAdams yeah. and Heath Ledger and Chris Pine. Um, so and, yeah, and, and it was kind of amazing. It's not like anything that one could predict, oh, Rachel McAdams from doing The Hot Chick was gonna become, you know, sustain sure. the career that she has. I, I saw that she was extraordinary at a very young age. I mean, she had great focus and talent and freedom. She took great risks. Mm -hmm. I mean, when she was auditioning, she flew in from Canada. I'd seen her on tape. Um, Marsha Ross, who was the head of that team, um, she was familiar with her as well. And she came to our office and auditioned for us. And we were so impressed with what she did and her the freedom, her physical freedom. She'd been an ice skater when she was a teenager. She was a competitive oh. ice skater. And that, the athleticism and, you know, the focus that you need to be an athlete really, I think, served her very well as an actor later on. So, um, yeah, so it, w it was apparent to both Marcia and myself that um, she was a very special young actress, but I don't think anybody could predict that she would have the career that she did. When I was, you know, I told you I had many jobs. Yeah. One of the jobs I had when I was... Um, First starting out was I was an agent for a very short time for Ambrosia Mortimer, and they had a client named Sam Jackson. They didn't quite know what to do with this guy, Sam Jackson. Mm -hmm. And I went to see him in a play in New Jersey, and, and was yeah, it was like a snowy day and a snowy night, and we nearly veered off the road and stuff. But um, I said, you you shouldn't drop this guy. He's really good. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, he hadn't had any big breaks, but I guess at some point. He must have had a relationship with Spike Lee. Spike Lee knew him, and that sort of launched his career. So at the time, could I have predicted that Sam Jackson would be a huge star? No. You know, but you had the taste to identify, this guy's good. Yes, don't, right. Don't it, get rid of him. Right. He it's, may be a slow burn, but... Yeah, and that, honestly, is just, it's an instinct. And, you know, I don't know where that comes from. I don't... Sure. I mean, yes, you can develop your taste, but... It's sort of an instinct, and I, yeah, it's just something that, yeah, I don't, I can't really explain. Well, and and I guess another one that I wanted to mention, though, of all of those, because because you cast Aaron Taylor Johnson very early in his career as well. Um, but, now, Aaron Taylor Johnson, I did not. Well, uh, he I was, say he early was, in his career, early on his upswing, because he started when he was a kid, right? Well, that's when I cast him. I I, I was oh, part yeah. of a team. 
I always kind of yeah. He was in Shanghai. He looks way older than he actually is. Yeah, he's he's, he was he was about eleven years old when he was in Shanghai Nights, and Priscilla John in London cast him. I was part of that. You were part of that team. Yeah. So that goes to the point that you're talking about. It's not just right. And that's that's one thing that I'm trying to suss out with this show, and that I'm not. Yeah. We haven't really found. We haven't gone too deep into that aspect yet, and we may go into that now. Um, is the fact that there are on on a lot of different shows there are, are multiple casting directors. Absolutely. Sometimes there's casting by, and then there's a casting director, and then there's a casting team underneath that, or there's a location casting, and there's right. all of these different people that put in these different ingredients to make the soup. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm not really sure with some of these projects. I mean, with uh, say the Princess Diaries, was that just you? On that show? No, no, that was Marsha Ross and myself, and I believe Gail Goldberg was on that. Okay. Um, right, and we, you know, we all worked on it, and um, yeah, Anne Hathaway had was on a series on it. It was a Fox series. I can't remember the name. It was very short lived, mm-hmm. and we'd seen her on that, and you know, so she was brought in sort of at the tail end of the casting process. We had already tested girls for that part, but we we had identified her as being someone who was you know, a really strong possibility. And she came right in for Gary, which is unusual. Usually she would read for the casting director first or, you know, you'd do some kind of mix and match before you had a producer session or before you had a screen test. Um, but in her case, she she went right for the screen test. Why was that the case? Just because she came in later in the process after and you were already testing? And because we sort of had, because she was had been on this series and um, just we knew that she was very special. She was. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, she <laughs> Turned absolutely out she was. was. That, yeah. that movie, exactly. she, she's phenomenal. I rewatched that one again, and it's it's undeniable how talented she is, and you could just see, like, oh. What a talented comedian. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's because uh, she was, what, 17, 18? Like, she was. She was she's, yeah, a little bit older. I think she's 19, still. maybe. Yeah, she's but still like, quite young. Yeah, yeah. And to have that control, I yes. think, that she had. Right. It, it's, it seems to me that that's rare with that age group, especially. Oh, yeah. Having that emotional control and having the ability to kind of go in and out of the emotional and to the, the comedic and be slapstick funny and also just flat out funny. Yes. Um, that one, it, it, was, it was fascinating to watch uh, that going back and seeing all of that. But the other one that really stood out to me uh, I put it on in the background while I was going through notes and stuff on you, was uh, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Amy Poehler is in that movie, and I've seen that movie probably a couple times. Uh, I had no clue. Oh. And now that I go back and I see it, she is she is the funniest part of that movie with her Tourette's. Right. How did you stumble across Amy I think, Poehler? I, I think that Rob Schneider had suggested her. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that, okay. He, he knew a lot of, yeah, I sure. think he had worked with her and, uh, you know, he knew a lot of comedians. Sure. Yeah. So, and, and that leads me I mean, me we into... knew, we knew Amy Poehler, but I think he was, a, you know, he said, oh, what, wouldn't Amy Poehler be great for this part? Okay. Well, how often is that the case? How often are, are one, productions coming with people either already attached or director has somebody that's so in mind that they've pretty much got the role? Um, it's... It's a mix. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that that may be true of one role. Okay. 
in the, you know in a whole cast. I don't think that that's typical of most of the roles, majority of the roles. I mean, frankly, casting director, you know, their job is to know the talent pool, and so they're very often introducing actors to directors. Okay, okay. That, that's generally, but you know, sometimes it, it, it certainly goes in the other direction um, as well, where directors will introduce actors to casting directors, but it's primarily the casting director who's, because that's, that's their sole focus, sure. you know, in their work. Well, and, and that leads me to my next uh, film that I want to talk about. I want to talk about Gone Baby Gone. Um, I hadn't seen it until we set up our interview. Um, holy shit, pardon uh, my German. I think that's ger actually German. Um, ben, Affleck, ben Affleck directed. His brother is in the lead role. Right. Who came along with Ben? Because he also wrote the movie. Yes. Um, it was his first movie that he directed. Yeah. He had written, obviously. He had written Goodwill Hunting. It is, it is the most Boston Bostoners that ever Bostoned in that movie. Right. There, I mean, that, the whole opening sequence of seeing all of these people, and I know a lot of that's extras casting and, and local casting and stuff like that. But Yes, we have a wonderful local casting director for that. Was phenomenal. But all of the other people, um, Amy Ryan... Who yes, Amy Ryan was someone for right. Oscar yes. for her role. She yeah. was a horrible human being in that movie, <laughs> but so good. She played it beautifully. How did that project come to you, and how do you go about casting something when the director who also wrote the movie is a huge movie star and probably brought his brother? Um. I was at the Walt Disney Company, and at that point, they owned Miramax. And um, Dick Cook loved Ben Affleck, and kind of, you know, he championed him to do this movie, gave him $20 million, and said, go make this movie. And he needed a casting director, and the head of our department, our casting department, was Marsha Ross. And she said, Donna, do you want to do this? So I said, sure. Um, she'd worked on it for a time. Um, but she got busy with other projects. So, yeah, you know, it was just, it was a great opportunity for me to work with Ben and um, on his first movie. And he didn't know Amy Ryan. I knew her from New York Theater. And um, I just had sort of, again, this instinct that she would be good for this role. Thing that she did that was quite incredible is that he was really insistent that everybody sound like they were from Boston, that they had even, he wanted people just to be from Boston practically. I mean, he was mm -hmm. really, he would not consider any European actors, any British actors. Huh. And, you know, we argued about that, but he, he was very adamant, you know, that the Boston accent be correct, you know, sure. that it be perfect. And she came in and she fooled him. She fooled him. Yes, with her Boston accent. It ah. was so good. He thought she was from Boston. She's That's from Queens. Great. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. So that wow. was, yeah, that was really delightful to watch her work. And yeah, she was phenomenal in that part she was. and certainly deserved, you know, the nomination that she got. Um, so, with the rest of that cast, I mean, you've got Michelle Monaghan, you've got Morgan Freeman, Ed Harris, um, Titus Welver. Yes. Yeah, Titus was someone else I brought in. I'd seen him in theater How in LA. many of these people were pre-attached? A lot of them were attached. They were? Uh, yeah. Or, or not attached, but um, Ben used his relationships, too, to cast sure. um, a number of the actors. He'd worked with Morgan and Ed before. 
And with Morgan, it was... Who was... Ed was incredible in that movie. Yeah. It's just yes. unbelievable. Like, everybody in that movie was really good. And that's, that's another thing about that type of movie, why they do so well is because all of the pieces fit right so well yeah together yeah um, so I'm, I'm my curiosity with that on, on, a, on a larger scale even outside of just gone baby gone is how often are you coming onto a project where a, a great deal of it's already cast and a great deal of like the main roles are already taken by somebody who's who's been attached so they can either get the funding for the movie or get the green light to actually make yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it depends, right? Studio films, generally a couple of the leads are attached, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, how the project gets going. Um, and then you cast the rest of the roles. Or um, with independent films, again, it's usually you know, maybe one or two people are attached and then you have to cast okay. the rest of it. Or maybe not at all. I just did a film with Morgan Saylor and um, McCall Lombardi. It hasn't been released yet. Um, it's, it's called Just a Little Bit Longer and I think it now has a new title. But um, nobody was cast in that, you know. Okay. So, so I had to, you know, cast 100% of the actors. Um, Is it beneficial to have a person already attached to it that you can kind of build around or do you like the freedom of going from a blank slate if the person is right for it and he's someone that other actors want to work with i think it's you know very positive mm-hmm. um in the case of gone baby gone you know who doesn't want to work with ed harris right sure so um he certainly was a magnet for other people and you know it was ben's first movie as a director so he was nervous about it and um and he was an untried director at that point. So I think, you know, he didn't know, you know, how it was going to be received or which actors would be interested. And so, you know, I mean, his relationship with these actors um, really, I think, was very helpful in terms of the casting. But by the time I was brought on to it, the actors that I was seeing were all, you know, pretty much excited about it and wanted sure. to be part of it. Um, so another movie of yours that I really loved, I, I watched it when it originally came out and rewatched it again last night is Annapolis. It's a beautiful movie. Uh, James Franco stars across from Tyrese, um, with a lot of other supporting characters that you, you would see their face, but you may not know their names. I think it had a sense of hope and aspiration that, uh, I, a lot of movies right now feel to be missing. Um, and maybe that's just a product of the times and all that. Uh, but I read somewhere that Mr. Franco and Mr. Tyrese did not quite get along on this set. And I don't want to get into the gossip of it, so don't worry. Um, I want to talk about chemistry and how chemistry doesn't just mean those two things go together really, really well. Those two people, you can tell they love each other. That's chemistry. I think chemistry, to me, uh, sometimes it's volatile. Sometimes there are two things that don't seem to want to go together, but it's beautiful to watch them together. Um, how often is that the case, and how how are you looking at that from a casting perspective in the process of casting? 
when you're putting together a cast, I mean, it's really creating a tapestry. So you have to balance it. And part of it is, you know, kind of what you think is the essence of that person, how they're going to respond to another person. I, I don't think you can necessarily predict if somebody's not going to get along with somebody else if they've never met. Mm -hmm. And in the case of James Franco and Tyrese, I, I don't know that much about that, honestly. Sure. So I don't know whether they and did. And I don't or, either. It was just. Yeah, if they did yeah. or did not get along. But um, I don't know that that's something you can predict. In Annapolis, their characters are pitted against one another the entire movie. Right. Not, even at the end, when they're they're not buddy-buddy. Right. But they, there's a, a tinge of mutual respect that happens at the very end. And I think they're headbutting. I don't know. The, maybe it's the actor in me that really likes the the idea of you know what Kazan used to do to his actors and stuff like that. That that relationship outside of the camera showed through on camera and made their performances that much stronger. Yeah, I, I think it's a factor sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I Something don't know that. You're right. You always have that information though. Um, so one of the last movies I want to talk to you about, and I wanted to talk about something a little weird, Rubber. Ah. <laughs> and which is described on the trailer as Roger Corman by way of Samuel Beckett, which couldn't be, <laughs> there, there's no better way to describe that movie. But it's also something you've worked with, and I might pronounce his name wrong because I think it's a very French name, Quentin Dupio? Dupio? Uh, it's... The Americanization is Quentin Dupieux. In okay. French, it's Quentin Dupieux. Quentin Dupieux. Yeah. Okay. So you've worked with him on all of his movies. Well, he's, at, he's now actually, he's um, working in France now. So he's been, ah. he is making movies he that I'm is. not involved with, unfortunately, because I'm not in France. Uh, but yes, I, I did four films for him. Yeah, you did Wrong, Wrong Cops, <laughs> right. Rubber, and Reality. Correct. And I've seen... Rubber. I've seen Rubber multiple times because I had to show it to people. It's a very weird movie. I was going to say, I, I feel sorry for you. That not at it all. Times. Not at all. I watched this movie um, with a friend of mine who said uh, he he uh, his roommate at the time was dating Marilyn Manson and said it was Marilyn Manson's favorite movie of the year. Oh yeah. So I had to sit down and watch right. it. And <laughs> it's. If for any of you out there who don't know, this movie is the story of a homicidal car tire uh, that travels across the desert, uh, exploding things with its with its mind powers. It blows things and humans up. Uh, it is the weirdest movie I think I've seen to date. Has, um, did you see his other movies? I haven't yet. Yeah. But they are on. They are now on my uh, list to watch for sure. And I watched all the trailers for. Yeah, Wrong I loved Wrong. Wrong. I think that might have been my favorite of yeah? the films. Yeah. Um, because he's sort of what Contant's able to do is kind of enter into a dream state and create a dream reality. Yes. And I. That's kind of. It's amazing that he can do that. It you, really is. You really feel transported. And, um, and and you leave the theater feeling like you've had an experience. Absolutely. And that's that's why I was able to watch Rubber for a second time. Because the first time I sat down and watched it, I watched it with my friend and uh, the couple who lived across the hall at the time. And there's a moment in the movie where there's a whole group of people who are watching what's going on right. from a distance. And they're given a turkey that's laced with cyanide or something that ends up killing them. Right. And 
it's this, I saw it as a metaphor for, all right, this is a moment when people are going to start checking out of this movie because it's getting weird. It, it started weird, but the, you know, the guy popping out of the trunk and giving you the, the opening instance of what's going on, all right, that'll hold me for a little bit, and then there's some killing, and that's kind of funny. And, but at that point, the two people who were watching it with us from across the hall were like, nope, we're done. We've got to leave. <laughs> so just the, the metaphor of that has stuck with me so much. Uh, and, and like you said, it's a dream state that you kind of, he pulls you into the dream world and takes you through this whole thing. How did you start working with Quentin and how, how do you develop the kind of relationship with a director that they come back to you again and again and again to help cast their movies? Um, I met um, Quentin through a producer who knew another producer, so it was basically a referral. Um, Joseph Leek was friends with someone um, at, a, at a company, and so he got my name, and he was working with Quentin. Um, and, yeah, we just, you know, I think Quentin and I just sort of connected, and, you know, I brought him people, and he liked them. He, I think what he liked was that I brought him people that he would never have thought of. Um, okay. And it was very difficult casting Rubber, and all of his movies were difficult because Quentin made a decision when he came to the United States that he didn't want to be part of the system. Okay. So he never wanted to have an agent. He never, you know, he did none of the sort of the things that you need to do to be plugged into Hollywood. Um, that was a very conscious decision on his part. So, it, you know, he had financing from France, but it, he was not known. He's very famous in France. Okay. He's, he's quite a celebrity and very respected there and in Europe. But here, he's not really known. Mm. So it was really challenging getting people to come in. And, cons and also, it was a weird script. And the way it was presented, you know, the typing of it was weird. It wasn't the normal layout for a film. So all of it, you know, some agents said, what is this? You know, they, they didn't get it sure. at all and were very skeptical about it. Um, and, you know, weren't sure that they wanted their clients to be part of it. And so it was sort of, and I too, for the first film, had to take a little bit of a leap of faith, but um, I'd seen some of his other work because he'd done, you know, some work in France and mm -hmm. spoke to him about his concept. And I had a lot of fun working with him. Did his other work stay in that same vein of the kind of dream world? Uh, Combination strange? of strange and funny. Okay. Sure. He has a great sense of humor. Absolutely. I yeah, totally so he doesn't agree. take himself so seriously. Which yeah. you can definitely tell yeah. in, in rubber. So now I kind of want to go into where we're sitting right now. Um, Aquila Morong Studio. Yes. How, I know, I know early on, again, going back to one of your other interviews, uh, you said you had a dream as a teenager to, to build a studio with like-minded artists. And you have. What what are you what are some things that contributed to you achieving that dream of creating that studio? Well, I have a wonderful partner, mm -hmm. Deborah Quilla, and she and I um, knew each other back in Brooklyn when we were both casting associates in Manhattan. Okay. Um, and we we talked. She had studied with Stella Adler, and I'd studied with Bill Esper. And we said, you know, one day we should have an acting studio. And she said, yeah, let's do it. So you know. Flash forward to many, many years after I left Disney and I sort of had room in my life 
and she was still very interested in doing that. So, you know, together she's had enormously successful career, and um, but really has a passion for acting and for actors as I do, and so we said let's do it, and you know it's it's been almost ten years. So for those of you who don't know out there, what what is it that you guys do here at the studio? Um, we do. We're looking for serious actors who want to be trained further um, to help support them in their work, in their careers. Uh, on Deb's side, she's very much um, trained by Stella Adler. She spent many, many years with her. And so she has foundations class, which is beginning Stella Adler base technique, and she has more advanced and then scene study. From my side, I'm really interested in helping actors launch their careers from their training. So it's a complement. So my work is primarily camera-based. So I do a professional scene study class where I bring in guest directors. Mm -hmm. And we first break down the scripts. And I use my Meisner training to do that, as well as other training. I work with this man named Brad Barnes, who was trained in Adrian Weiss's method of looking at intention. So I do a lot of that, and um, we have wonderful guest directors come every other week, and we film it, and then we review it. And then I have an audition technique class, which is sort of what it sounds like, but it's not a class to get a job, which you know is quite controversial right now. Sure. But it's really about honing sort of a skill, you know, of auditioning, which is separate from acting. I mean, yes, it, is it is acting, but it's also a skill in itself. So I teach that. And my real love is working with teenagers, and I do that as well. Okay. And um, in out of that, I've gone into producing. I produced a number of plays this past year, three plays, and I'm now getting into film production. So yeah. it's all an outgrowth of the studio work. Okay, so the producing came on the heels of building the studio. How did that transition happen? Well, there was um, a student of mine, a teen student, um, Leo Ramsey, who's a very talented actor, who was doing a scene from This Is Our Youth, mm -hmm. and he said, why don't we do a whole production of it? And I thought he could handle it. So I said, yeah, let's do it. So huh. it kind of happened that way, and it's mushroomed. It's grown bigger and bigger. Because of my work with directors, I was able to bring in Scott Hornbacher to do Reasons to be Pretty, and Brad Barnes did a production of Orphans as well as This Is Our Youth. So it's, and now, they were so excited about the whole process of directing these plays that we've developed two productions. We're working on them right now. We're creating two films um, based on actors' improvs, sort of a Mike Lee situation oh, where we're wow. doing um, a lot of improvisation, structured improvisation, uh, based on characters that the actors actually auditioned with. That's awesome. Yeah, so some of these actors are from Aquila Morong Studio. Some of them are from Brad Barnes's work with directors and actors, um, and some with Scott Hornbacher's relationships through Mad Men and Sopranos and um, all of the amazing shows that he's worked on as a director and producer. Sure. So it's, yeah, so we're using all of our talent and our contacts, and definitely, you know, Aquila Morong Studio is a place where you know, we encourage actors to create work. We just really think it's important for actors to kind of, 
you know, create their own work while they're, you know, struggling in Hollywood. Hollywood can be really kind of demoralizing and soul-crushing. Sure, it can. <laughs> uh, but I think it's really important that you find like-minded people and you work with them, and that's, you know, part of our philosophy at the studio. Serious, you know, we're serious about it, and we, and we expect a lot from our students, and we have a very high bar in terms of um, our expectations, but we also are very nurturing in that regard. Well, where can people find out more information about your studio? The best way is through our website, aquilamorongstudio.com. Okay, great. And there's a good description of all the classes and some of the work we're doing. All right. We didn't really get into it yet. Uh, we talked about it briefly. Work, your work at Disney, um, how, how did that begin? And What's the view like from atop a entity like that? Because you were vice president of casting. I started features? out, you know, at a, at a low level manager position when I first worked at Disney. Eileen Starger hired me. Um, I had been an agent, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and she had interacted with me when I was an agent, and then she was looking for somebody, and she hired me. Um, and so I just, you know, I stayed and worked my way up, and she left, and then Marsha Ross came in as head of casting. And so, you know, I continued working with Marsha for probably 12, 13 years. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing there as as What was part, I doing? Yeah, what, what, were, what was the uh, job like? I was overseeing projects, so I worked with many different casting directors on many different projects, saw many self-tapes or tapes from local casting directors, had to really wade through all that, and then um, cast movies, you know, then we started, with Marsha, we started casting movies, so um, things like Princess Diaries, we started with Mr. Magoo, or actually I think we started with something before that, Uh, we did a video before that that Mila Kunis was in when she was okay. like 13 like sh- years uh-huh. old. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So okay. one of her first things. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Before we wrap up, are there any things that you want to promote, that you want to talk about, any projects that you're working on, any movies that you worked on that are coming soon that people should check out? Well, there's so much I want to promote, but um, I don't know where to start. I did a wonderful, I mentioned this French movie I did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in English, and it's um, sort of a coming to L.A. movie. Um, it doesn't have distribution currently. Um, it's called Just a Little Bit Longer, or We Are Coyotes. Um, Anna Ladoul and um, Marco Lavia are the director-writers of it. And Morgan Saylor and McCall Lombardi are starring in it. Okay. So I... I've seen it. I'm really impressed with it. I think it's a beautiful film. Um, I'm very excited about this company that I'm working with, Pretty Orphans, that came out of Reasons to be Pretty and the Orphans Productions mm-hmm. and the two movies that we're doing. And, of course, my studio, Aquila Morong Studio. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening in, and uh, a special thank you to Donna Morong for having us today, for allowing us to go over time a little bit and uh, for being so gracious with answering these questions. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Charlie. Absolutely. Bye, everyone. And there's another one. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Placing Faces. Didn't I tell you Donna was wonderful? 
Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, love, heart, thumbs up, and share this episode so we can continue making this show. Tune in next week when we chat with Risa Brayman Garcia, who you didn't know you knew as the director of 200 Cigarettes and the casting director of films like True Romance, Speed, Natural Born Killers, Benny and June, and TV shows like Roseanne, CSI New York, and SEAL Team currently on CBS. I tell actors and young directors and my daughter, who's a young uh, filmmaker, um, this all the time, which is, you know, just get around people who know what they're doing, be around talent, you know, learn by watching and, and observing and being a part of just soaking up the universe and the experience of people who know what they're doing, or at least who are talented and seem like they know what they're doing. And, and that's how I learned in the theater in New York. Placing Faces is powered by Collaborator.com a media production service connecting media professionals to companies, brands, and agencies, allowing you to scale your production based on your needs. Video professionals find work and companies save money. We'd also like to thank our partners at the Casting Society of America for helping to introduce us to so many of our guests. They also serve as a hub of information about this branch of the film industry. To learn more about the society and what it takes to get into casting, you can visit their site at castingsociety.com. If you're a casting director and want to be a part of this program, please email us at contact at placingfaces.com. Thank you so much for listening. It is our intention to keep sharing the stories of these casting directors every single week for the foreseeable future. So don't forget to tune in.